Welcome back to the Grief Observed Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Morrell. If you want to be on the podcast to tell your story of grief, please contact me at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash griefobservedpodcast, and I'll have that uh, in the show description. Uh, so just uh, click on that and, and send me an email. Um, I think we've got a pretty good episode lined up today. My guest is Dr. Terry Daniel. Uh, she's an inner spiritual hospice chaplain, end-of-life educator, and grief counselor certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling and in family-focused grief therapy by the Portland Institute for Loss and Transition. Uh, she's written several books, and I'm just excited to have Dr. Daniel here on the podcast with us. Uh, Dr. Daniel, thanks for, for being here, and uh, glad, glad that we can speak. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I am also glad that we can speak. So thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, I've read some of your things. In fact, I've read a new article that uh, I hope we can kind of talk about a little bit today. And uh, so why don't you just share a little bit about yourself for the listeners and uh, and anything you want to tell us about you? Yeah, thank you. So since most of your listeners are um, interested in sharing their grief stories and hearing others, I'll start with mine. I first became interested in this work when my 16-year-old son died after a long, debilitating illness. He had a rare metabolic disorder, and he was in a wheelchair and needed pretty much total care for the last half of his life. He died when he was 16, and the experience of grief and caregiving speaks for itself. Putting that aside for just a moment, the experience of being present for his death was so, for lack of a better term, metaphysically elevated mm. for me that I wanted to be around that more and work with that. So I became a hospice volunteer. Um I very quickly learned as a volunteer that I wanted to get into deeper spiritual conversations with patients, but as a volunteer, you're not really allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. Only a chaplain can do that. So I decided at age 56 to go to college. I never went when I was young and started out uh, with a bachelor's in religious studies, then a master's in pastoral care, and then a doctorate in pastoral counseling so that I could be a hospice chaplain. Now, personally, I'm not religious in any way at all. I'm what they call spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. But I loved having the education in um, the various religious traditions, because as a hospice chaplain, you have to be able to speak all those languages. And along the way, I did a lot of internships and a lot of extra training, uh, a lot of certifications in grief and uh I have a lot of that stuff. So here I am. And I learned through that uh, education that I didn't actually want to be a chaplain. I wanted to be a teacher, which is why I had to get the doctorate. Um, so now I teach in the thanatology program at Marion University, which I highly recommend if anybody wants to get some credentials in thanatology, which is basically the study of death. And I teach classes on several different things. Um, related to grief, complex grief, uh, grief support interventions, blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> uh, and I am a very, a part-time hospice chaplain for three different hospices here in Portland. So 
that's my story. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. And, uh, I also kind of did that, uh, later life transition into counseling. And, uh, I, I think it's been rewarding to do so. I, I think maybe I had to go through some of those things in life, get some bumps and bruises. And, and I think that really helps me in my own practice. Um, so 56 before you went to college. Wow. Well, don't you think going to college is much easier when you're older, <laughs> you know, you're smarter and wiser and you can concentrate and it, it was, it seemed so easy. I loved school. I wish I could go back, you know, and I, I, I highly recommend waiting till you're older to go to college. I think you respect the value of college and education a lot more in later yeah. years. I know, uh, if, if you saw my grades from high school, you probably would not be talking to me right now. So. Me too. I hear you. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question um, about your son. And I, I think a lot of people look at that anticipatory grief and think that it's going to uh, maybe lessen grief later. Can you tell me how that worked in your personal life? I think with the right understanding and support, it can lessen grief later. And of course, I see this a lot in hospital. They're older, right? So uh, they've got years of caregiving and illness and hospitalizations and decline, dementia, so much stuff that the family members, the caregivers, whoever, uh, by the time they die, it's a huge relief. But of mm. course, we're talking about people in their 80s, you know. Um, but for many people, even though the person is their mother or father in their 80s, they love them and they grieve over them. And, you know, I do grief counseling for lots and lots of these folks. And they all say, I did all my grieving while she was alive. I lost her little by little, um, mm. watching her decline with illness and mental deterioration. So by the time she died, it was a relief for everybody. But again, I'm talking about elderly, sick people. Sure. Um, and, and, but that could apply to anybody anticipatory grief. If you have the good fortune to know that a death is coming, um, that anticipatory grief process is so precious and and valuable because you can prepare for it, which of course you can't do. There is no anticipatory grief when somebody goes out to the grocery store and gets hit by a bus, right? Right, right. Well, I want to transition into um, speaking a little bit about stages of grief. And and I, like I stated, I, I've got your article here, um, your journal article called The Stubborn Persistence of Grief Stage Theory. And uh, it's it's very compelling and I would like to talk about that and just first get your uh, off-the-cuff reaction to the five stages of grief. What are your thoughts there? Uh, well, I can sum it up in one word. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, here's the thing. I was thinking about this before we, we got on this call. Um, you know, your uh, podcast, as far as I can see, has a lot of peer support, peer-to-peer, -peer, people sharing their grief stories with other people. And peer support is great for certain things. It's great because it shows you that you're not alone, mm -hmm. that other people have had losses similar to yours, some worse, some not as bad. Um, and it gives you, a, it builds a community of people who've had the same experience. Peer support has tremendous value. 
One of the downsides of peer support is that peers versus professionals are going to share information that they get from popular culture, from the internet, from Facebook, wherever they're getting it, which has a lot of misinformation about grief. And they're going to say things like, oh, I'm in the third stage of grief, you know, or I was in denial or I was bargaining. And this is something we really warn against, you know, we, you know, use your peer support for exactly what it's designed for is the support and comfort and companionship and community of peers. But if you want real information and real therapeutic uh, direction about grief, go to professionals and professionals today are not ever going to refer to the five stages of grief. And if they do, that means that they have not stayed up to date on research and education and go find another professional. Yeah. Uh, this may be an unfair question and, and completely speculation, but what do you think Elizabeth Kubler-Ross would say today, knowing all of the research out there? Do you think she would have uh, backed off of the five stages? Absolutely. In fact, she did. Um, toward the later part of her life, she actually said um, these were never meant to be stages. Right. And uh, I, I have a quote from her in my article. I can't remember it right now, but she basically said, you know, these are just responses. They're not stages. And so she knew that they were not two things she knew. One, they were not sequential stages, and she also knew that they were never, ever, ever meant to apply to grief. Her research was on terminally ill people in a hospital who were dying, and she was asking about their responses to their own impending death, which is a completely different universe than grieving the death of another person. And so she interviewed, I think, something like 200 patients, and it was not a formal study. Uh, it was a kind of a, you know, anecdotal, informal study. And she concluded that there were these five most common responses, keyword responses, that, you know, she could boil down from all these interviews. And that's what those five things were. Most commonly, most people felt this, 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 and this. And recognizing that they were responses and not stages, what's baffling is that she called them stages. Mm. And maybe early on when she first published her book, that's what she meant because she didn't really come out and speak against the word stages until much later. But I think uh, she would be happy to see what we're saying now. And she was around for a lot of this research. You know, she was around until I think the late nineties. Um, what am I saying? Much later than that. I don't know exactly when she died, but she was very active. Uh, and so she was aware of this. And, um, what happened was, here's the whole story. Um, her book on death and dying was extremely successful. And around 1995, she met a man by the name of David Kessler who said to her, let's write a book together and take your five stages of death and dying and apply it to the and apply it to grief. And so they wrote a book called On Grief and Grieving, spinning off the title On Death and Dying. And that's where this idea of five stages of grief got so popular. 
Mm-hmm. And it got ridiculously popular. I think this stage thing perpetuates because it's catchy. Um, and it's it's everywhere you turn. People are now using it in different business models and things like that. They always play off of the five stages of grief. How do we extinguish it? <laughs> by having conversations like this, um, <laughs> you know, by by promoting good bona fide research. And the problem mm. is that it's so it's so promulgated, you know, just everywhere. You know, it's used for everything, like you know, in art, in science, in culture, in music. I mean, it's just everywhere. Um, the the problem is that there are people making money off of it. And for example, David Kessler, after the success of the book that he wrote with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross just a few years ago, despite being completely aware of the criticisms of the stage theory, came out with another book with the blessing of the Kubler-Ross Foundation. And this one is called Meaning Making, the sixth stage of grief. So he actually went and added another stage. Um, And so he's keeping it going because why do you think? Because it, he's, he's getting rich off of it. And, and it's really, you know, I, I don't like to bash another person publicly, but in this case, I think it's extremely unethical and I uh, even have in my paper, he had an interview in 2007, and um, he said that he'd once suggested to Elizabeth that the term response might be more accurate than stage. But at that point, he said, the stages were so ingrained in the culture, so prevalent in our society, that there was no pulling them back. Mm. So it's almost like, well, uh, we've conditioned people to believe this is true so we might as well keep it going even though it's not true is that your take right because it's <laughs> because it's putting money in my bank account yeah yeah and he is very popular and and I I like to I have read the book that finding meaning and I was wondering how much his thought process went into that because I know Dr. Robert Niermeyer uh basically has his uh Meaning making, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, how much of that do you feel plays into the thought of this supposed sixth six stage of grief? Well, Kessler made it play in. You know, meaning making is, uh, you know, Niemeyer kind of gets the credit for that terminology and that theory, and it's extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, me- meaning making means, you know, you have your loss. And instead of like, why did this happen? Why did God let this happen? There is a why to it, but it the why is what you put into it, right? So you make meaning of it. So for example, in my own story, the meaning made of my son's death is that it prompted me to move into this field and do yes. this work. And so sometimes you may, you know, start a foundation to raise money for the thing that killed your loved one, or, you know, your life will change and you will become a different person. This is the meaning making result. And there's a process. So of course, David Kessler has heard of Niemeyer and heard of meaning making. So he took it and he wrapped it into this term meaning making. So 
he, you know, very cleverly connected those two things. Mm. I'm a big fan of the dual process model. What are your thoughts on that? It's brilliant. It's absolutely, you know, these are the new models that we mm -hmm. want to put out there to replace the stages. And unfortunately, most regular average folks do not read academic journals um, or go to conferences and webinars, you know, for professionals. So they don't get to hear about this stuff very much. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that these processes like the dual process model, continuing bonds, warden's tasks of grieving, and there's something new called the themes, uh, bereavement themes that I love. We need to get this stuff out into the popular culture. More people need to be writing books and websites and podcasts about getting this out there so that the stages will finally fade away. And the dual process model is uh, I give an exercise to my grief clients where I have them just take a piece of paper, draw a vertical line down the middle. In the left-hand column, it, they title it loss. In the right-hand column, they title it restoration. And they use this as a sort of journal. And they watch their process every day. And so if they have a day that's really bad and they're crying and they're angry and they can't get out of bed and they're just, you know, they can't you know, deal with the tasks that need to be done, like, you know, taking their loved one's clothes out of the closet or whatever. And it's just a bad day where they're just crying and lost all day. Write that down in the loss column. Here's what my day was like. I couldn't face Christmas. I didn't want to, you know, my friends were calling and I didn't answer the phone. I'm just too steeped in my pain today, which is fine. Write it down in the loss column. Later that same day, a friend comes and knocks on your door, says, get out of bed, I'm taking you for a hike. And you go out for a hike and it's a beautiful day and you actually have fun and you laugh for a few minutes. Go home, write that down in the restoration column and watch these two columns, use it like a journal and watch how you're going back between these two things, which is what the dual process model is. And you'll begin to see your healing process. You don't want to be too much in the loss column and you don't want to be too much in the restoration column. You want to add, uh, you want to aim toward balance and ultimately over time, and I mean a lot of time, a year or more than a year, more and more and more toward restoration. Hmm. So you speak about that, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people in their minds believe that in one year, I need to be at a different spot. And I think that's uh, maybe culturally based here in the U.S. that, okay, you go through that year of firsts and then, you know, that second year, et cetera, et cetera. My biggest question is we now have the prolonged grief disorder in our DSM-5 TR. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's, it's such an edgy thing. You know, for example, Robert Niemeyer his position on it is completely on the fence. And I kind of agree with him. Mm -hmm. um, so for people listening, you know, uh, there came into our, our manual of diagnostic codes, something called complicated grief. And, and it was a good concept. It meant that if people are not showing signs of restoration, uh, after, and I don't even want to put a timeline because it's there is no timeline, but there are certain things that you do to restore. For example, you 
you start to find a little bit of joy again. You start to socialize again. You start to take better care of yourself. You get out and exercise. You're eating better. You know, these things do start to happen over time with grief. If after, let's say, six months, you're still lying in bed crying every day and not socializing and you're developing health problems, high blood pressure, overeating, addiction, whatever, you are not healing. And that's what complicated grief meant. And there are lots of ways that we can identify when that's happening to somebody. And there is kind of a timeline of normative healing, but it's very flexible depending on a million factors. So that became a, diag a diagnosis. And it got put into this diagnostic manual so that people, uh, practitioners could one, bill insurance for it because it mm -hmm. had a billing code, and two, prescribe medication if they're a psychiatrist. And so, they, okay, here's your diagnosis. You have complicated grief. Here's some medication. It was also put in there to separate the symptoms of extreme grieving, let's call it, from clinical depression. Because prior to this, a grieving person would come in with these symptoms that I just described and a psychiatrist would say, oh, you're clinically depressed. Here's some depression medication. So it is very important to separate those two things because that's not clinical depression necessarily. It's grief. They look the same sometimes. And a good practitioner will know how to identify the difference. So uh, this complicated grief uh, disorder has is changing all the time because it's subject to so much new research and they're not they're now calling it prolonged grief disorder mm -hmm. and i think that most practitioners hate that term i know that i do because the word prolonged is completely wrong because it suggests a time frame you've been grieving yes. for too long that's not a good term and so we're all trying to come up with a better name for it yeah, I do like the insurance factor because I, I do bill for insurance. Uh, but you're right. Prolonged basically states, all right, we're we're uh, comparing it to something else, right? A, yes. a shorter grief. And that, that's unfair. I want to kind of circle back to, uh, we, we've kind of kicked around the term restoration a little bit here. And I believe it was in your article that hope and restoration are not found in those five stages of grief. And that's probably some of the most important parts of moving forward, right? Yes. And thank you for saying that. And I'm going to give you these. Um, so let's let's go back to the these being responses instead of stages. So you could ask any of your grief clients, you know, tell me some of your responses that you had when your person died. And they might say, well, I felt guilty. Um I I didn't want to deal with it. I distanced from it or I felt relief or I was actually, you know, when I finally stopped taking care of my 90-year-old mother, I felt kind of exhilarated that I'd get my life back now. Um, if they're very spiritual, they might experience curiosity. If the person had a good death, they might feel gratitude for the good care that they got in hospice. Um it might change somebody's spiritual views and make them more spiritually open or it may make them more spiritually not open. Um, it might change, you know, your life. It might make you experience a sense of freedom. There could also be fear, anxiety, 
dread, there can be resentment, there mm. can be isolation. There's so many things. And I, I have a whole list of these other possible responses in my uh, paper. Well, one of the many problems with the stages is it limits it down to these five. And it doesn't even consider any of these. And none of those five are healthy or positive, or I should say growth positive responses, ex except perhaps the last one of the stages, which is acceptance. So what, if you're going to go with those stages, look, you're going through all this really difficult, um, intense struggle, and you finally arrive at acceptance. That's like the pinnacle of the experience. But what that kind of acceptance really means is like passive resignation, like, all right, I guess I have to accept that he died. Mm. Well, what we know now from contemporary research and just from observing real life is acceptance should be the first thing you experience. And everything that we know, if you look at like Rando's um, six R's of grieving and Warden's tasks and all the different ones that we have, Acceptance is where you begin, not where you end. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's a huge, huge uh, thing. And then you want to explore all these different possible responses. So I, um, I was uh, facilitating a funeral recently where I actually, in my uh, remarks at the funeral, I actually said this. I said to the audience, you know, you've all... Um, heard of the five stages of grief and here we are at mark's funeral and you know as you guys go forward in your life after you leave here today grieving the loss of our friend mark i want to kind of steer you away from expecting to go through these stages because look at where we are now um we we, we aren't in denial here's mark laying in his coffin we can see that he is dead we can't deny this there's no bargaining because who we're going to bargain with. There's Mark. Mm. He's dead. There's no bargaining. We're not going to be clinically depressed. We're going to be sad. That's normal. Sadness is very different than depression. Uh, and are we angry that Mark died? Yeah. He was too young to have a heart attack and die. That's okay. It's something that we'll experience along with many other feelings. And then ultimately in these stages, you ended acceptance. But I will suggest to you, to Mark's friends, that we begin at acceptance. Here is Mark. We're all here at his funeral. We have already accepted that he's gone. Now let's work on how we go forward from here. Mm -hmm. So that's a very different approach. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that you were able to say that at a funeral. And I'll tell you why. Literally, uh, right after you sent me your article last week, I don't know why, but I started watching this documentary and it was called The Passing On. And I have to say it was it was a good documentary. It's about uh, some embalmers that are kind of coming up or going through school and uh, working under this guy who's been embalming for years. But there's one part in the movie uh, or documentary that I was just like, oh my goodness, I can't even believe I just witnessed this. But there's one of the other embalmers asking this student to name the five stages and even required him to give them in order, I kid you not. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. That's yeah. terrible. 
I, it is. I, I just, my jaw dropped and I, I'm like, this is exactly what this article is speaking of. It's just so ingrained into society that, uh, you know, I, I would be curious if we just went in front of, I don't know, Walmart and asked 200 people, are you familiar with the five stages of grief? I guarantee you most of those people could at least name one or two of those stages, right? It's absolutely. that popular. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that's really, that's that just makes my blood boil when I hear that about the embalmers. And there's also an example in my paper um, in my one of the hospices I work for in our documentation software, in our charting, uh, when we do a grief visit, uh, it actually asks us to ask the or to identify what stage of the five stages our client is at. Mm. And when and when we do an intake um, for a, a grief client, we're supposed to um, ask them or we're supposed to answer the question, did you tell the client about the five stages of grief and what stage are they at? This software hasn't been updated since 1995. And, you know, everybody in hospice who uses this software is just furious about this. Mm. And when we when we have to do that documentation, we just answer that question, no, I didn't tell them that. And what stages of the grief are there? We just leave it blank, you know? So, um, yeah, so that, I mean, it's even ingrained in hospice. Mm -hmm. It's in the software. I love your idea of standing in front of Walmart. And, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could just do that and hand my paper out to everybody or just, you know, stand in front of Walmart and say, here are some new ideas instead of the five stages. Look at these. Yeah, I, I think it would be a fantastic idea. I don't know um, if people would engage on that, but I, I think, you know, uh, hey, we'll we'll give you a, a $5 Walmart card if you can name all five stages of grief. Of course, you know, in this day and age, if they didn't know, they'd be looking on their cell phones, right? So. <laughs> right, right. And who's going to pay for that Walmart card anyway? You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, um, that's a great project for ADEC. You're familiar with ADEC. The I am, I yeah. am. Um, are you going to the conference this year? No, I'm not. I really, I would like to do that. Um, I've thought about, you know, uh, certification or fellowship through mm -hmm. ADEC, but uh, maybe that's something you and I can discuss offline there. But yeah, yeah I, I would be very, very uh, accepting of that. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, that'd be a great project for ADEC to do, to get some funding, to go out into the world with a clipboard and teach people a new way of looking at grief instead of the stages. Yeah. So I, I'll put you on the spot. Do you have a favorite, any, any newer model that people should lean towards? You know, I've said I like dual process and, and you list several new things uh, or newer things in your paper. Uh, do you have a favorite? I, I like them all. I, you know, I use them all in my work, of course, depending on what, people need. I'm very big on ritual and, you know, art assisted representational objects. I do a lot of that. I can't technically call it art therapy because I'm not a certified art therapist, but there is something new. Uh, if you give me two seconds, I'm going to sure. find it here. Hold on. Uh, there was an article that came out in January by 
Kathy Shearer and some of the other big researchers on complicated grief or prolonged grief disorder or whatever we're calling it these days. And it kind of very briefly mentioned something called seven bereavement themes, which is, you know, things that we go through. What are some of the themes um, that somebody can be expected to experience? And I think this is one of the most beautiful things. I actually share this document with all my clients. The number one, and these are not sequential, these are not stages, uh, but the most prominent, I, I would say, or overarching theme is understanding and accepting grief. And so when you're helping somebody, you, you say, you know, what tools and resources can we use to learn more about grief and help integrate it into our life? And that's where, you know, the process, it's an education process, books, workshops, support groups, storytelling, counseling, uh, understanding that it's normal to feel sad and to, you know, befriend your sadness and learn how to carry it in your life. Um, managing pain, painful emotions. That's a big theme. How do we do that? You know, you, you go into the grocery store where you always used to shop when your husband was alive and it's so painful just to walk into the grocery store. How do you do that? What tools can we give you to help you when you get a wave of emotion like that? It could be something, something as simple as a breathing exercise. Or if you're at home, you know, draw a picture of your sadness, put it on paper, or go to, um, you know, light a little candle and say a prayer. Tools, actual tools. That's really what these are. Um, another one of these tools or themes that I really like is called planning for a meaningful future. And what I do with my grief clients who are really struggling, I say, what's coming up in the future mm. for you? What's what's happening next week? Oh, we're going skiing. Or, oh, you know, I'm taking a trip. And like, okay, this let's focus on that. Having a marker in the future for your life continuing is a really important thing to have. And just simply to get somebody to talk about something they're looking forward to is really helpful. I agree on that. Uh, I, I read something very recently where it said, um, thinking about something in the future is more pleasing to the brain than actually doing the event or recalling the event later. Interesting. So I, I completely buy into that. Yeah. And I find that with my grief clients, it's really helpful. All of a sudden, just by mentioning it, instead of, oh, we're going on our annual ski trip and I'm going to be so sad because my husband won't be there. Just thinking we're going on our annual ski trip, period, mm -hmm. is is a positive reframing, right? right? And so another one is strengthening ongoing relationships. We, you know, this is all stuff that we knew, you know, we already know. Building relationships. When someone calls you and says, let's go to lunch, go. Don't be afraid to initiate social contact, but curate the advice that you're getting. This is, you know, these are my own words. Like have a lot of good relationships, but don't, you know, be careful about listening to your friend's advice, right? When they say, well, you've been grieving long enough or what stage of grief are in? Are you in, you know, this is a process where you cut off toxic relationships and strengthen healthy ones. I have a, a kind of bullet list of this. And of course, telling the story of the death is also a theme. You want to be able to do that, but you don't want to obsess about it. You know, this is why peer support is important. In a peer support group, you can talk about your story. That's appropriate. But you don't want to be tell obsessing your story 
with everybody that you meet. Um, and the next one is learning to live with reminders, how to look at these reminders, not as triggers, but as reminders. They can be bittersweet instead of traumatizing. And then the last one is uh, establish an enduring connection with the person who died, which of course is continuing bonds. How do we encourage a person to build processes and have tools for continuing bonds? And um, the source of all of this is a paper that came out, I'm sorry, it was 2020, called Complicated Grief Therapy for Clinicians. So I uh, um, just wanted to cite that there. I can send you a link to that, or I can, I can send you this document if you want to post it on your podcast page. Sure, I can put that in the description. And uh, yeah, that is, that is you know, it, it just sounds like uh, the way it's described as themes um, doesn't mean that everyone's uh, got to go through a, a particular stage or in order, right? It's It's setting it up for a different mm -hmm. feeling right off the bat. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and it's a different feeling is a good way to put it, or just a different way to mm -hmm. frame it, you know, and we're so stuck in this five stage framework and we're also stuck in the old, you know, grief work framework that was given to us by Freud, which was hurry up and get over right. it. Basically, you know, what Freud said is, you know, you're going to feel, you know, feel your strong emotions, but work on separating from the relationship and separating from the pain. And he came up with that theory in 1917. Wow. And that was the model for therapy until the 60s. And so we need to, you know, thank, I'm so grateful that I live at a time when these new theories are coming up because they're really good. Yeah. Uh, Terry, do you believe that if people were still driving cars from 1917, that they would be living happy lives? <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's, that's kind of the thought process. Like we're, we're still trying to cling to old ways as opposed to uh, looking at empirical evidence and research and things that are actually pushing this to help people in the future. So I don't know. Well, that, that question applies to my other great passion in my work is, you know, how religious beliefs impact the grief experience. And that's a topic for another time. But that's like driving cars from 1917, isn't it? Yeah. You know, carrying beliefs from uh, 217. <laughs> right. And and I think a lot of uh, things in religion, we, we do tend to, um, I guess, carry on things that have been passed down year after year after year from generation to generation. And uh, I, I strongly believe that people should research uh, you know, for themselves, whether, you know, they're Protestant or Catholic or Buddhist or whatever. Like, I, I do believe that they need to uh, research what they believe as opposed to looking at what mom or dad may have believed. Exactly. That's a, a really good way to put it. Um, in the, my classes that I teach on this, I there's something called Im embedded versus deliberative theology. And embedded is just what it sounds like, the beliefs that were embedded in you since you were born. And deliberative means that you deliberated, you gave it some thought, you, you did a deliberation process about your theology. It could also be called chosen versus inherited 
theology. And this is a process we should all go through. And this is happening in the world, as you probably know, if you look at the statistics worldwide, people are doing deliberative theology now and questioning these beliefs. And that's why we're seeing identification with traditional uh, religious systems dropping and more people not identifying with a denomination or a religion and going into a more inclusive, more open-ended kind of belief structure. Hmm. Yeah, that that definitely, that could be a, a whole nother episode, and, and I would absolutely love to have you back for that. Um, you know, I, I am a Christian, but the way that uh, I, I guess my beliefs are now compared to, say, the way I was brought up, which was also in a Christian home, they're, they're far different. Um, and like I stated, you know, it's either way, I encourage people to research what's good for them. Um, maybe one last question here, and then I'll kind of let you close us out. But, you know, being uh, a hospice, uh, in hospice, um, autonomy is just as important as in the counseling room when it comes to death. What are your thoughts on that? Autonomy for the client? Yeah, absolutely. Like the the person who's passing away, their their thoughts, you know, obviously you can't push your um your thoughts about religion on them. Um and I often Oh, okay. So I see. <laughs> we're talking so we're talking about we're still on religion. Yeah, yeah, that. I'm sorry. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um Absolutely. So the thing about being a hospice chaplain, and most people don't know that know this, this is another thing I'd love to stand in front of Walmart and teach people about is a chaplain is not a pastor. Mm -hmm. They're not even in the same universe. Um, a pastor is a representative of a particular faith tradition, and their job is to support people in that faith. A chaplain does not represent any faith tradition, regardless of what that chaplain's own beliefs are. Um, as a chaplain, we are trained to leave our beliefs at the door and meet the patient or client where they are. And we never lead them or educate them or direct them in any way. And so that that's the autonomy that you're talking yes. about. So if a patient says to me, here's what I believe, I'm not going to try to talk them out of it. However, there is a caveat to that. And I'll give you an example. Um, I have a man right now whose wife died and he feels really guilty about some things that happened uh, before she died. And he said to me, it says in the Bible that she won't be my wife when we're in heaven. And I'm really sad about that because I want her to be my wife for eternity in the afterlife. But God says that she won't be my wife in heaven. So of course, as a trained theologian, I'm going to go look this up and find out what it is. And I researched it and it is in Matthew 30, but it has a context that this man does not know because he didn't study theology. He was just told what, his, what the preacher told him in the Baptist church, mm. right? Mm. So um, if you really analyze these scripture passages, you understand you have to read between the lines. A lot of it is symbolic, but there's also context. In this particular story, um, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is the laws of, of human life. in physical life don't apply. I want to get too deep into the weeds here of him saying, you know, a kind of 
pushing against the Hebrew laws that he followed at his time and saying, you know, it's going to be a whole different thing when you're in non-physical reality. And, you know, there will be no marriages, there will be no um, engagements, because we're beyond that. We're beyond the egoic attachments of this is my child, this is my wife, this is my identity. That's what he was saying. But you have to really know how to read this stuff. Anyway, in this case, I told this to this man. I did educate him and lead him rather than just allow him to sit with that belief because that belief was causing him extreme stress mm. and distress and complicated grief. So there are times when... Um, we can challenge their beliefs, but you have to do it very carefully. Mm. And in, in this case, it was really helpful for him. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I, I appreciate what you're doing in the, the field of grief and uh, kind of helping push that along and, and, you know, trying again to extinguish those old ways of thinking. And uh Certainly, uh, you're absolutely welcome back here again. I, I'd love to have more conversations. Um, anything that you think we missed or that you want to add on here at the end? Well, um, for people who are interested in the uh, the religious spiritual question, I would suggest my website, deathgriefandbelief.com. Get a lot of information there. And, of course, people can find me there as well. And uh, that's pretty much it. I will send you um, the seven bereavement themes document that you can share with people. And I think I think we're good to go. Excellent. Well, listeners, thanks for being here. I hope you've gained some knowledge. Um, I hope that uh, each of you go out and speak to someone you know about the five stages of grief and say, hey, there's something else out there. This doesn't exist. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Thanks for uh, being with us. I hope you tune in on the next episode and we will catch you then. Have a great day, everyone.